Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now make no mistake. U.S. soccer often can't get out of its own way and shoots itself in the foot. But there are smart, qualified, and committed men and women at U.S. soccer who every day work hard, solve problems, and make a difference. But that's not the narrative. And U.S. soccer is either powerless to fight back or content not to. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we're talking about the mess that is the United States Soccer Federation. Ooh. In our Mossy Makes a Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about the Euro snobbery of the Club World Cup. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about MLS to Charlotte and the Sopranos. In our back three, we'll be talking Man City uh, and all their struggles and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a frock soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy, on this Monday morning? I am good. Uh, Lexi, I thought we were done talking Michigan football this season, <laughs> but yeah, coming off that beatdown against Ohio State, there was a lot of debate about uh, among Michigan fans about which bowl game they wanted Michigan right. to end up in, a high-profile one against a good opponent to keep us in the spotlight, or an easier one against a lesser opponent so, so we win. can end the season on a winning note. This is, such, uh, this is ridiculous. I must confess, I was in the second group. Give us an easy game. Just get that 10 You just want to go out. Yeah. Would, would it be before the end of the year? Well, the doomsday scenario played out for people like me. We will face Alabama in the Citrus Bowl Bama. on New Year's Day, which if you think the Ohio State game was bad, this could— Really, they're uglier. a good team. Oh, <laughs> well, you can good. see our producers oh, laughing in the laughing background. Back All right, so this was not the greatest of draws. Do they even have a draw? But whatever. Okay, so you're going to have to do it the hard way then. Ugh. That's just going to sting and resonate for the rest of the year, unless yes. Mr. Harbaugh can do something. If he's even the coach, right? Dun dun dun. Well, he'll be the coach for the bowl game, but no, it, after. Oh yeah, after, yes. after you guys get your ass kicked, right? I mean, okay. Wow. Well, you know, for the Wolverines, the hits just keep on coming. <laughs> Do anything else interesting uh, this weekend besides uh, watch football? Did you, did uh, the Wolverines play this weekend? No, because this weekend was the conference championship game. Oh, yes. So, the final uh, four has been decided, right? I mean, that obviously the Wolverines are not in. Yes, Michigan's like season uh, typically ends before that. Uh, so. <laughs> 
So did we you watch anything? Involved. Did you watch any? Uh, we had we had Bundesliga, so we had our uh, our three o'clock wake up calls and all that kind of stuff. So a long weekend of uh, Bundesliga. I know you were up for uh, for that. So anything else? No, I mean you know we'll we'll talk during the Ask Alexi segment. I've got some movie and television uh, recommendations, oh. uh, but I'll save it for there. Other than that, just uh, you know work, sports, Bundesliga. Wonderful. Well, I had I had a wonderful weekend. As I said, working Bundesliga, but also uh, we had some fireworks out of here. So the festive period is certainly upon us. I'm in the festive mood. Uh, everywhere I go, I'm wearing my uh, my Santa hat now. And I do it because I like to do it, but I also do it because it just irritates my children so much that their father walks around wearing a Santa, <laughs> Santa hat. So it makes it that much better uh, when I put it on. All right, enough about what we're wearing or your, uh, your Wolverines. Ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Now, if you've seen the news lately, you've read that our United States Soccer Federation has fostered a toxic work environment. It has dysfunctional, disengaged, and rudderless leadership. It is bleeding money as it defends itself against multiple indefensible lawsuits. It ignores Latino, African-American, and inner city communities. It cares more about making money than making progress. It is woefully understaffed. It doesn't believe in equal or equitable pay and treatment. It lets talent slip through the cracks. It puts unnecessary obstacles in the path of the existing American youth, adult, and pro soccer development structures. It is tone deaf to its membership. In short, U.S. soccer is a mess. Now, everything I just said is the general public's perception of the United States Soccer Federation. Is it the reality? No. But that doesn't matter in the court of public opinion. Now, make no mistake, U.S. soccer often can't get out of its own way and shoots itself in the foot. But there are smart, qualified, and committed men and women at U.S. soccer who every day work hard, solve problems, and make a difference. There are new initiatives. There are success stories. There is progress, but that's not the narrative. And U.S. soccer is either powerless to fight back or content not to. As a consequence, U.S. soccer's image is so bad that whatever good is done often isn't believed or even recognized. This narrative isn't being fostered by a bunch of anonymous soccer dorks tweeting in their underwear in their parents' basement. This is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, 60 Minutes, Sports Illustrated, all that mainstream media out there basically saying that two years after the epic failure to qualify for the Men's World Cup, by the way, a two years that has since seen the U.S. secure the 2026 Men's World Cup and the U.S. Women's National Team win the World Cup, that the United States Soccer Federation is once again at an all-time low. Wow, that is quite a feat. So, where are the faces and voices standing up for the United States Soccer Federation? Right now, there are only shadows. If you truly believe in what U.S. soccer is doing, you need to be seen. You need to be heard. You need to fight back. You need to publicly defend our federation and your actions. It is your responsibility. It is your job. Unless, of course, the perception actually is the reality. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union for this week. What is your perception, and was I fair and accurate in my portrayal of what the general public, I think, sees the United States Soccer Federation in the end of 2019 as? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in the two years we've been doing this podcast, 
when I think back to all the idiotic opinions I've espoused, the one that I got the most trouble for on Twitter was praising Greg Berhalter. People were really up in arms. They got a lot of, you know, we expect Alexi to be a shill, but you're supposed to be the truth sayer there. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've never seen it this toxic. And yeah, you're not allowed to praise anything that U.S. soccer is doing. That's absolutely true. But do you also think, and I, I, will, I will tell you, I think there is, there is plenty to be critical of. And as I said, it's not as if uh, U.S. soccer's you-know-what doesn't stink. There, is, there, are, there are plenty of problems. There's plenty to be critical of. But, you know, my, my reaction to this, and it's been building up over time, is one of... I, I take U.S. soccer, and what, and, uh, we need to understand that when I say U.S. soccer, there's two different things. There's the United, U.S. soccer, which is what we talk about, which is our community, our culture, and it covers everything. And then there's U.S. soccer as U.S. capital S soccer, which is the United States Soccer Federation. The United States Soccer Federation provided incredible opportunities for me. I, I take it personally when the United States Soccer Federation is being dragged through the mud. And... I expect that the people, the men and women that are in charge of this, are there to defend their actions and defend what I think is an important entity and one that can uh, can do good things. And so when you're talking about Carlos Cordero, when you're talking about Cindy Cohn, when you're talking about Jay Berhalter, when you're talking about Brian uh, Rometty, these types of leaders that are, that are there at Ernie Stewart, even Kate Margraf, who's just come on the scene, these types of people that are in leadership positions, I too often just, I don't see any of that defense. And maybe they've come to the realization that they can't, the, the, the tide of negativity and criticism is so, so strong that they just are powerless to fight back against it. Let's go through some of these specifics. Sure. Beyond the optics, which everybody admits is bad, even Sunil Galati said that in an interview I read this weekend, uh, on a tangible level, how problematic is this Jay Berhalter situation? We know Ernie Stewart hired right. Greg Berhalter, so he's going to give him a long leash. But if things continue to go wrong, even Ernie Stewart will reach a point where he has to consider getting rid of him. And how difficult will that be when his boss is Greg Berhalter's brother? And it strains credulity to think that if Greg Berhalter's job status is being discussed, Jay Berhalter isn't going to want to influence that in any way. Yeah, this is this, you know this is a situation that the United States Soccer Federation uh, created. Uh, Jay Berhalter and Greg Berhalter, obviously the, um, the acting COO, uh, and not the acting, the actual COO, who possibly is being considered for the CEO position of the United States Soccer Federation, is the brother of the national team coach. Jay Berhalter has been around with the Federation for a long time. He knows a tremendous amount. I know him uh, personally. He is a smart guy. Uh, should, that the, should the fact that his brother is coach preclude him from being the top person at the United States Soccer Federation? No. But at a time where the optics are at times so horrible, obviously this is going to give them pause. Is this a problem? I think it's only going to exasperate things if he becomes the person. Now, they're going through a process right now. They've said that they have some very, very good candidates, men and women, and they are, they are CEO-less right now. And that's a problem because that is a huge position. You know, I mentioned Carlos Codero, who is the president of the United States Soccer Federation. Cindy Cohn is the vice president of the, of the United States Soccer Federation. Uh, and people like Jay Berhalter and Brian Rometty are, are acting uh, in these leadership positions. But... You know, this last week, we finally saw Ernie Stewart come out and talk a little bit and defend some of the decisions and the actions that they have. We finally saw Carlos Cordero because they had a meeting, finally. But there's no face voice right now that is continually out there 
pounding the pavement and making sure that the side of the Federation is at least part of the conversation. And as I said, you know, this isn't about just kids on their couch tweeting about stuff. This is real hardcore news organizations, respected news operations that are chronicling the types of problems and therefore the criticisms of the United States Soccer Federation at this time. It's funny, we're taping this on a Monday morning mm -hmm. and Megan Rapino has just been named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year, so congratulations to her. Yep. And it made me think in the Wall Street Journal article about the dysfunction at U.S. soccer, the writer, in, in the spirit of fairness, did mention that there have been some successes uh, since 2017, including the U.S. women's national team winning the World Cup. The problem with that is this battle over equal pay has prevented right. U.S. soccer from touting the U.S. women's success as a feather in their cap. The perception now is that the U.S. women are succeeding despite being treated unfairly by their federation. Is that fair? Uh, yes. And th you know that's why I say that even when things go well, there's so much negative to counter it that oftentimes it gets, uh, it gets overshadowed. Now, I want to make, make a point uh, um, when it comes to leadership. I want leaders that believe in what they are doing. I don't necessarily have to agree with them. So if it's a Ernie Stewart, if it's a Jay Burhalter, if it's a Greg Burhalter, if it's a Carlos Cordero, if it's a Cindy Cohen, whoever it ends up being, if they have plans and they have ideas and designs as to how to move soccer forward, and it's not just about the kicking of the ball. We know the Soccer Federation is much more than that. I want them to believe in what they're doing. I don't have to uh, agree with it. I've always said that I would rather have someone have a flawed plan than no plan at all. But you have to be able to defend it. And so I was actually heartened over the last uh, uh, couple of days, even as I was writing this, to see Ernie Stewart even come out and at least attempt to defend um, the, uh, what are we calling it? The Chicago? Uh... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that okay, next. Okay, so go yeah. ahead. So, so U.S. Soccer, people, this is, a, this is another thing that they did. U.S. soccer is mandating that all the coaches relocate right. to Chicago, and that's prompted some youth coaches to uh, quit their jobs because they don't want to relocate mm -hmm. to Chicago. And so, I mean, is U.S. soccer being silly there, or do you see a value in all the coaches working out of one place? I see a value in everybody being together. I know we live in the in the age of Skype, and we live in the age of uh, telecommuting and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I get that, but not there is no substitute for actually being and hanging around. Now, it's a, it, because it's a soccer program, it's a little bit different. And I, I get it. People don't, uh, you're going to lose possible candidates because they don't want to move to show. And here's a case where I can disagree maybe with that initiative and say, I don't agree that you should do that. But if that's truly what Ernie believes is going to get us on the, the right path, then he, in his position, and he oversees both the men's team and the national team uh, and the women's national team. If that's what he believes, then he should implement that. Okay, and we'll discuss, and we may criticize going forward. But you need to be out there constantly defending, uh, defending your actions and defending your uh, defending your decisions. Doesn't mean you agree with people, but I want, in a, in a strange way, I want the personality and the character that for so long has defined U.S. Soccer Federation players, okay, players that play for the national team, to uh, play with a chip on their shoulder, to defend their country, defend themselves, defend their team, to do all that kind of stuff, to not take any crap. I want that type of mentality on a consistent basis coming from the United States Soccer Federation. I want them 
to defend the things that they are doing. I want them not even to, to only defend, but even go on the offensive. And I know it's difficult because they, we talked about the lawsuits and everything that's going, that's going on. And when you have lawyers involved, uh, sometimes they, uh, they tell you you can or cannot uh, do things right now. But they have let the entire narrative, as I said, be completely, it's not hijacked. It wasn't even a hijacking. It was just a taking. And so now all you hear is negative. Is where there's smoke, this fire? Okay. And that's why I said, believe me, there are plenty of problems and plenty of legitimate gripes and criticisms to be levied at the individuals and at the entity that it is, uh, that is U.S. soccer. But you can't tell me that there isn't, there aren't good people, as I mentioned, the State of the Union, and that there, there are not success stories, there aren't things they point to. Maybe they're not as sexy, and maybe they're not as cool, and there maybe they're not as tangible as winning and losing games. And so that's my question to you. If the United States men's national team had found a way to get a point in Cuba, Trinidad, would any of this be happening? No, that's what trigger this whole thing isn't it Absolutely. amazing though isn't it amazing the, the the trickle effect not even a trickle i mean the the, the pouring out of uh, and that continues to not just taint but infect everything and you know since that qualification failure uh change became the buzzword we had a presidential election a new president elected how much change has there really been if i was a journalist and i spent a month with u.s soccer federation circa 2016 and uh, observing how they operate, and then I spent a month now. Would I notice any discernible change, or is it business as usual? This is what I think you would, and this is from the outside. And, and look, I, I want people to understand, it's easy from this chair or from your couch or something like that to lob grenades and to say, you suck, and you're not doing things right, and we, we do it sometimes for a living. I get it. I'm not on the inside. I don't see the day in and day, uh, day out. I'm, I, I like to do my due diligence. I like to talk to as many different people as possible, get as many different uh, ideas. So this is, the I think, the difference you would see. In the past, the United States Soccer Federation has been, they like to say, a mom-and-pop type of organization in the way that it has been run. It's just the fact that it has grown so significantly and so quickly that, like any business, it, 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 those growing pains can be incredibly difficult to go through. How big it's gotten, the money that's involved, the opportunity that is there when it comes to staffing and all that kind of stuff. So I think you would see a much more, uh, especially with Sunil Gulati uh, at the helm. He, you know, part of his, part of the criticism of him was that he was a dictator, shall, you, shall we say, in the way that he decided things. And he said, this is the way we're going. I look at that in a certain sense as, yes, that can be problematic, but also you want somebody to make a decision and say, we're going there. I don't care. I've listened to everyone and I'm going there. Okay. I think that Carlos Cordero has recognized that this is a changing organization. He is much more about consensus. He is much more about getting everybody's opinion. But I think what has happened is, while you need something in the middle, because while the dictatorship type style of Sunil Gulati was on this end, and the consensus building is on this end. The problem is, while Sunil Gulati making all the decisions by himself certainly pushed everything along and sometimes forced things to go along, but it was also just one person at times making those decisions. And on the other side, you have a situation where it's paralysis by analysis. In the time and the effort that is being taken to do things, you're not moving. You're not evolving fast enough. You're not growing. And as I said, you're, you're, you're not doing the things in order to position yourself. 
it, it, look, it may be that this is a much more of a long-term play when it comes to the leadership that's, uh, that's going on right now. I just look at it as while they are figuring things out, the image of the United States Soccer Federation is being completely shot up and tarnished. And I don't believe that that's necessary. Yeah, you're going to take hits. Yeah, you're going to take criticism. That's part of the deal. But to where each and everything that you do is so maligned and so tainted from start to finish, uh, it's, it's not good. And as I said, I thought that the low point was in 2017 when the United States lost in Cuba. I didn't think the United States Soccer Federation, even though it's just the men's team, the way that people looked at the United States Soccer Federation and by association, U.S. soccer, the soccer landscape out there, was at a low point. I, I, I think we're, we're, I think we're still at a low point, maybe even a lower point right now in terms of the confidence out there right now and the belief that this is going to change anytime, any, anytime soon. Are we putting too much emphasis and, and legitimacy or caring about the United States Soccer Federation? It's just a federation, right? No, no. I mean, I think it's important. I mean, they, they drive the sport in this country. I mean, we, we could talk about this forever. I mean, sure. you rattled off all the grievances. There's so much to unpack here. The, the one about ignoring Latino, African-American, and inner city communities. How, how fair is that criticism? Um, the but one every about- one of these criticisms, I guarantee you, I could sit down with a man or woman from the United States Soccer Federation, and they would say, yes, but. Yes, boom, 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 boom. And I'm not saying that they would have uh, a, a legitimate, uh, that they're not going to point to some and say, yeah, we, can, we need to do better on that. We need to do better on that. But they would certainly have a counter argument to the narrative that persists out there. Is the, it puts unnecessary obstacles in the path of the existing American youth, adult, and pro soccer development structures. Is that pay for play or promotion relegation? It's, it's pay for play. It is the developmental academy uh, and the implementation, uh, the creation, the implementation of the development academy and the, um, the problems that it created, but maybe it was necessary and maybe it was important. You got to break some eggs at times going uh, when you're going to change. It's the professional league standards and the constant competition. It's all of those different things combined that there is a group that will say, why is the Federation mandating this? Or why are they forcing us to, us to do this at a youth level when it comes to the age designation? Or as I said, the developmental academy implementation uh, when it comes to the adult uh, level in terms of you know, the difficulty of, of coaching or the difficulty of refereeing or difficulty of just adding new membership when it comes to the professional level, the professional standards and how MLS has an affiliation uh, with the United States Soccer Federation and, you know, how much they're in bed with them and that kind of stuff. So all of these, all of these different things. But there are, you know, if I was in Chicago right now for the United States Soccer Federation, I would be angry and I would be livid at my leadership because they're not defending me. Now, maybe they can't defend it, and that would be even, even worse. And maybe I am idealistic, or maybe I'm misguided, uh, or maybe I don't even know what's going, uh, what's going on. And it's not only as bad as that narrative is, but, it, but, it, but it's worse. If that's the case, then, uh, then, we got, then we got much bigger problems. Anything else, Masi? No, that's it. All right, look, this is going to continue on. We're going to continue to talk about this, but don't think for a second that winning on the soccer field, and in particular, winning for the U.S. men's national team, doesn't solve a lot of these problems, but uh, there are plenty of problems, and there is going to be ongoing criticism. I would just like to see 
the men and women in charge of the United States Soccer Federation find a way to fight back, to defend themselves, their colleagues, and to defend the United States Soccer Federation because I think it is worth defending. And as I said before, it doesn't mean it can't get better. All right, Mossy, moving on. Hello, people. Lexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? Uh, my case is that Cristiano Ronaldo is better than Bruninghiki. For those of you who are not avid followers of South American football, Bruninghiki is a 28-year-old journeyman Brazilian winger whose only dalliance in European football was a 12-month spell at Wolfsburg in which he failed to score a single goal. Bruninghiki has had a dream 2019 with Flamengo scoring 34 goals in all competitions, which prompted Brazilian manager Henissi Moins to say in a television program recently that Bruninghiki is better than Cristiano Ronaldo. Why am I telling you this? Because the fact that there are quote-unquote respected people in Brazil who think Bruninghiki is better than Cristiano Ronaldo is the storyline that overhangs the 2019 edition of the Club World Cup. No country has a bigger complex about where its domestic league lies in the landscape of the sport than Brazil. Many people in Brazil resent that more weight is given to what a player does in Europe than South America. They reject that any grain of salt needs to be given to a player's performances in Brazil when discussing them in a global context, and they lament that the national team is comprised almost entirely of European-based players. And that crowd is feeling very emboldened right now. The emergence of Flamengo coincided with a terrible run for the national team in the second half of 2019. Brazil had a five-match winless run in which its European-based stars played terribly, so the thinking goes, why not replace them with more informed Flamengo players? There are people in Brazil convinced that when Brazil takes the field for its first World Cup qualifier in March of 2020, there should be five or six Flamengo players in the starting lineup. So keep that in mind when you watch this Club World Cup. The driving force behind this competition has always been the desire of other regions, particularly South America, to prove it can compete with Europe. And that feeling is very prevalent this year. Folks in Brazil are sensing a real opportunity to alter perceptions. If Flamengo were to face Liverpool in the final, go toe-to-toe with them and beat them, it would validate their view of the world. That's one way that things could go. Or Liverpool could do Chichi a massive favor, dust off Flamengo, and inject some reality into the proceedings. Ooh, okay. So you, oh, this is wonderful. Okay. So, uh, so you disagree with the idea that many of your countrymen and women have in terms of the way that they view their domestic game and obviously the domestic players relative to those that are playing over in Europe. Yeah, I'm a weird case because I'm a Brazilian, but I am something of a Euro snob. Right. Although, you know, is it snobbery? if it's rooted in fact. The last four World Cups have been won by European nations with squads comprised entirely of players who play in European leagues, and 11 of the last 12 editions of the Club World Cup have been won by European clubs. So maybe it's just a reality of where we are, and it's natural that media, fans, and national team coaches place more weight in what players do in Europe than anywhere else. And if folks don't like that in these other countries, they have to hope that their domestic leagues get better rather than trying to convince themselves that things aren't the way they are. This is, uh, this is interesting, especially when you juxtapose it with the, the way that we think about uh, 
our domestic game, uh, our domestic players, and especially nowadays where the U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter at times gets criticized for his penchant for calling MLS players, having too many MLS players. This is always a constant, by the way. This is evergreen. It's, it's, you know, you have too, too many MLS players and stuff and stuff like that. Or, or, uh, or the European players are getting the benefit of the doubt, even though, even though they, uh, they shouldn't. But you're saying that a lot of Brazilians look at, in particular, I mean, I know this is framed around Flamengo. So let's, let's look at that as the elite club right now. If they made a national team, Okay, let's just say they took Flamenco. I don't know how many foreign players they have, but let's just say they just took the Brazilian players on Flamenco, put the yellow shirts on them, okay, and trotted them out there as the Brazilian national team. How do you think they would play? I think they would struggle, but there are people in Brazil convinced that they would do better than the national team is and doing right now. And why do you think and, they would and, struggle? And let me say this. Although I'm, like I said, I, I'm on the other side of this debate, I have some sympathy for my countrymen in Brazil because Brazil is a proud soccer nation that's sure. won five World Cups and to be constantly told that what a player does in the Brazilian league doesn't matter and they have to go to Europe to validate their worth, uh, you can't understand the resentment that that would foster in a country like Brazil, right? Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, and I know times have changed because the you know, the Brazils of 50s, 60s, 70s were dominated uh, in the majority by players that were playing uh, over in, in South America. Yeah, it's, it's this mass exportation of players to uh, Brazilian players to Europe is the last like 20, 25 years phenomenon. And people in Brazil have struggled to deal with the implications of that. Certainly. Yeah, and it's, it, 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 I, I totally get it. There's a pride factor. There's a nationalist type, type of feeling that, uh, and you know, that snobbery that, that comes on. I think that when a player that, when you're watching your national team and a player that is domestic, shall we say, is playing domestically. I think that there is an added sense of pride uh, and excitement when that is happening because there's the recognition that they are fighting against that snobbery and fighting against the, uh, the way that they are looked at from domestically and the way they looked at it from abroad. And this issue manifests itself in different ways. Last week, the Ballon d'Or was announced, and I got to make sure I pronounced that correctly because somebody got on me on, on Twitter. Oh, Ballon, no. Ballon d'Or. Um, <laughs> but, um, what was that? Uh, but, you um, tissue? <laughs> but in the 30-man shortlist for that award, all 30 players play their club football in Europe. And folks in South America were very annoyed by that. They feel like if this is ostensibly supposed to be a World Player of the Year award, it needs to be more inclusive and don't act like things that happen outside of Europe don't matter. So why couldn't somebody like Gabi Gol crack that 30-man shortlist given the year he's had? And you said recently, and you caught a lot of flack for this, that Carlos Vela is one of the 20 best players in the world. So by that logic, you would have liked to have seen somebody like Carlos Vela in that 30-man shortlist, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, if it is truly a world type of award, then you have to at least consider it. And they will say that they consider it, but we know that in reality it doesn't happen. I, I, you know, I oftentimes put things in in musical context. And so when I think about, you know, the great stars in the world, you know, a Taylor Swift, for example, uh, who sells ridiculous amounts of music, generates ridiculous amounts of money, and is very, very talented, okay? I think about a, uh, a young girl, a woman in, I don't know, pick your, pick your place that is, is a singer, that doesn't have the opportunity, uh, that doesn't have the visibility, and if you were to just pull them out and take off all of the glitz and glamour and everything surrounded by them and just put them and have them sing, you can, you can find a wonderful singer, singers that are better than Taylor Swift, singers that have, quote unquote, more talent than, than Taylor Swift. 
Uh, you can find plenty of them that, that don't, but it's, it's no, it is, it may be a little different, but that's, that's the way that I think of things. And so that when I'm looking at a player and looking at talent, I try not to let myself get, get too swayed by the environment and the circumstance that that person is uh, playing in. Having said that, okay, when a player is doing it consistently in the, in the EPL or something like that, as opposed to, I don't know, pick a, pick a league in South America, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that player is the same player, unless you ultimately switch them, unless you take that, that girl and put her on stage and give her the guitar and have her sing in that moment and see if that person can do the exact same thing that they're doing in their bedroom or that they're doing in a small little club that they can do it on stage because it's a different type of environment. I mentioned Bruno Henrique and Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm being a, a bit of a smart ass there. One guy no. said that. That's not like a widely held opinion in Brazil, but... Uh, one debate that is very much raging right now is Gabigol and Firmino. Brazilians have never really taken to Firmino because he's never replicated his Liverpool form for the national team. And there are many people in Brazil convinced right now that Gabigol should start up front for the national team instead of Firmino. And it's fascinating that they could meet in the final of this competition, potentially, just to see them both on the field together and, and who plays better. So, but With uh, your Euro snobbery then... Yeah. If you were to, let's take those two players, for example. Who's a better player? Firmino. Why? <laughs> uh, I just think he has more to his game. I know what you're going to say. If you surrounded Gabigol with that Liverpool talent and that structure, that, and, and you put Firmino back in Brazil, then maybe it'd be different. But I, I don't know. I, I, I just sort of, uh, I watch them both play, and I come away thinking that Firmino is, is the, I understand their variables but here. But, I, but, but you, you realize that you're totally swayed and biased because of the <laughs> fact that he is playing in Europe. And if both of those players, if you didn't know anything about them and you just watched them run around on a field with no context, no surroundings, no circumstances to, to play into it, that's the ultimate. That is the, the purest form of assessment of a player or of any talent, to be quite, to be quite honest. We never get it. We never, we, we never get it, which is why a lot of times when I'm talking about style of play or something like that, I always say, if it truly is a style of play, you have to be able to take out all that stuff that exists around it, the money associated with it, the fans, the culture, the, the uh, stadium environment, all, all of that kind of stuff. And if it truly is a style of play, then you should be able to identify it just with a bunch of X's on a white sheet of paper in terms of the movement. That's the style of play. But when you are assessing a player or when you're assessing a team, all of that other stuff comes, uh, comes into play uh, then, which is to get back to our original point of the Club World Cup right now, I don't think that that attitude is going to change when it comes to the Club World Cup. I don't know what they can do. That's, for a, that's a longer conversation in the future that we will certainly have right now. But with the Club World Cup upon us, I would love nothing more than to see Flamenco do something like that because it would generate that conversation. I think it would be great for the tournament to have that on a consistent basis happening. Let me say a couple of things. The South American team has lost in the semifinals in two of the last three editions of the Club World Cup and four of the last nine. So it's no guarantee it's even going to be Flamengo, Liverpool. And Flamengo might have to get past an Al Hilal side led by our old friend Sebastian Jovinko, who a lot of people were upset a few years ago that he wasn't in the shortlist for the Ballon d'Or when he had that incredible year for Toronto FC and led them to all those trophies. Uh, but if it does end up being Flamengo and Liverpool, the how does matter because three Brazilian clubs have beaten European sides in the final of the Club World Cup, but 
all three cases, it was a smash and grab job. They parked the bus, defended the whole game, waited for one chance on the counter, and they have nothing to apologize for. A win is a win. They should celebrate it. But as Tim Vickery has gone to great lengths in the last 15 years to make this point, in terms of this larger discussion about the strength of European football versus South American football, approaching a match that way is conceding the superiority of their of your opponent. It is how a lesser team tries to steal a result from a superior team. That's not what we've been sold here. People in Brazil are convinced Flamengo are going to be able to go toe-to-toe with Liverpool and outplay them and beat them that way. So if that does end up being the matchup, it's going to be fascinating to see if Flamengo oh, can live up to I all that. I would love to see. Can you imagine if an MLS team were to win CONCACAF Champions League, go to the World Cup, World Cup and then win? People's heads would explode. Well, How is it possible that the best club team in the world is an MLS team? Which means that MLS is the greatest league <laughs> in the world. Well, this is, this is the second-to-last edition of this tournament under this format. It's in Qatar, by the way. And next year's also is in Qatar, which is something of a dry run for the uh, World Cup in 2022. And then starting in and in 2021, it'll be in China. It'll be that expanded 2014 right. Johnny Infantino version, which will have more spots for CONCACAF. So theoretically, it increases the chances of an MLS team being in there. But uh, this this edition starts this week. It's on Fox Sports. I'm excited for it. So look for that. Uh, and yeah, I, I hope it ends up being Flamengo Liverpool because I'd love to see that. One question before we move on. Um, have you received your Christmas gift yet? from Tim Vickery. <laughs> I do mention every quite a bit. single pod. Oh my goodness. Wow. He's living my life right Someone's now. Someone's got a man crush. <laughs> Woo. Uh, All right, Tim. Well, if you're listening, you, your biggest fan is sitting across from yeah, me. My yeah. goodness. You can do no wrong. Even if he disagrees with something that you write, he still loves it, right? Yep. Yep. All yep. right. All right. Moving on. Yep. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's that time again, uh, time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the social media platforms and uh, you send them on through and we take a bunch of the questions that you send uh, or comments or concerns and we pick three of them each and every week. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? Uh, first up, at Steve under, underscore Schley. Uh, thoughts on MLS in Charlotte and then there's a series of question marks and exclamation points. <laughs> Lots of them. My goodness, look at them all. Uh, all right, Steve. Uh, so for those that don't know, um, I mean, the worst kept secret right now is that Charlotte is going to be uh, yet another expansion team for Major League Soccer. Why is this interesting and or important? Well, because the number of teams in MLS just continues to increase. That's one thing. Uh, two, the uh, ability to have rivalries is something that is of a priority when it comes to Major League Soccer. And so this goes right in there, especially in an area where MLS does not have a team, but proximity to Atlanta and to different places uh, on the Eastern Seaboard and and others lends itself to it. And then three, uh, not the least of which, is that if uh, our counts are to be believed, we're looking into the $300 million range when it comes to expansion fees. And from a business perspective, the fact that uh, what, 15 years ago, you could get a team for 5 to $10 million, and now you're at $300 million. That, in any business, is something that you will smile and rub your hands uh, together with. As far as you know, what it means, it was interesting because I was talking to some people. When I say talking to people, I mean tweeting back and forth with people about the uh, potential challenges that Nashville that's coming into the league has with season tickets. And you pay your money, you come into the league, you have a plan, you've been vetted and all that kind of stuff, and then you have to actually put it on. And a lot of these markets are coming in with 
a lot of fanfare and a lot of excitement and a lot of confidence that they are going to do things, and many of them have lived up to it. And the attention and the pressure and the focus on these expansion teams is just ratcheted up. When it comes to Charlotte, Charlotte's been around for a long time as a soccer type of area uh, from a U.S. soccer perspective, um, whether it's you know, a history when it comes to the men's and the women's games. So I think it's a logical type of choice for some of the reasons that we, uh, that we mentioned right now. It would be an incredible surprise if Charlotte is not only named, but named very soon as that, uh, that next expansion team. And, and it's not going to stop there. I like it. Uh, I think it's a, a good market. I think it's a market that will embrace the team. Uh, and as I said, I think it's a market that when MLS is looking at places to go, that footprint that they have, it serves a purpose. And uh, Steve, if you're from Charlotte, uh, congratulations, I guess. Uh, we'll see how they support it on the field. And then, of course, what that product looks like on the field. You ever been to Charlotte, Mossy? I have been to Charlotte. Yeah, it's a fun town. We have a good time uh, when we go there. We have uh, some Fox offices there, and oftentimes uh, through the year at, at different times, we'll have people going in. I've been there a bunch of times to do some different TV work there, too. Next up, at Ryan4982, this Gladbach team is something special, isn't it? So athletic, fast, and strong. It's not really a question, though. You just put the question mark there, wanting to talk about it. <laughs> Gladbach is special. You're right, though. It is. It is special. We were uh, we were talking this week. This is a Gladbach team that hasn't won Bundesliga since what? Seventy. Uh, Nineteen seventy-seven. Nineteen seventy-seven, and we know the uh, stranglehold that Bayern Munich has had on that league title. Bayern Munich, right now, by the way, is not not only not in Champions League uh, position, not even in uh, Europa League position right now, and Week after week, covering Bundesliga, we have talked about Gladbach's moment when it all falls apart, where it's not sustainable. And yet, each and every week, they don't care what we say, nor should they, and they come back with, uh, with performances that show how good they are. Now, they only had half a performance, but it was enough in that second half uh, this weekend to push them through, but they are for real. With this caveat, the interesting thing about the Bundesliga is this break that they take. And it, for, some, for some teams that are on a roll, it comes at the worst time. They, it stunts that growth that you have. It stunts that speed and that confidence that you have. And you come back around the other side uh, after the break, and you have to start up again. For other teams, it's a welcome break because they're either banged up or they just need that, that moment to take a breath to reassess what's going on. I worry that with that, that break, that Gladbach comes back with everybody else rejuvenated and they find it hard to regain that flame uh, that they have had, they have sported so well through the, uh, the year. But yeah, it's wonderful to see. I hope they do it because it, can be, uh, it will be a wonderful thing to see them from a historical perspective and a, see a kind of changing of the guard, if you will. Yeah, Gladbach-Bayern was actually the first great rivalry in the Bundesliga. There was a period from the late 60s to the late 70s in which they Gladbach and Bayern combined to win nine Bundesliga titles. Gladbach won five and Bayern won four. And those two clubs supplied most of the key players on West Germany's 1974 World Cup winning side. So a lot of uh, old-timers in Germany uh, really enjoyed watching those teams play a match this past weekend that felt like it had real title implications to it. It was sort of nostalgic. Uh, but really interesting situation at Bayern. 
Uh, Build reported last week that Mauricio Pochettino is not a candidate for the job, which is really surprising. And all the names that are being mentioned are guys that are gainfully employed and are at clubs that they're not going to leave in the middle of the season. So that would push it to the end of the season, which would, I guess, would mean sticking with Hansi Flick, which when he won his first four games, including beating Dortmund 4-0, didn't seem like such a problem. We were all getting kind of a Jupp Heynckes vibe off that situation. But now they've lost two in a row. And if they were to struggle with him, and, and, and it was just a manager, new manager bounce in the beginning, and, and he's in over his head, boy, would they just ride it out and have a bad season and wait until the end of the campaign to bring in a new manager? I wonder how they would well, handle that. What does that. ride it out mean? They can't ride it out and not make Champions League, though. Yeah. Bayern I mean, Munich, that's, that's... They bring uh, in another interim guy for the second half of the season? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jurgen Klinsmann, we did an interview with him. Uh, our good friend uh, Ian Joy got with him over in Germany, and he was talking about his current project uh, at uh, Hertha Berlin and I talked about last week and he, he, he very uh, openly and honestly said going down for a team like Hertha Berlin is a no-go. Well, not making Champions League, that is a no-go for Bayern Munich. So they, they better figure it out. And if they, if, it, if they have any inclination that that is something that's in jeopardy, I'm not talking about winning, winning the league, but if that's something that's in jeopardy, you got to do it now and you got to find someone. But it's easier said than done. And especially if, if all of their lists are already gamefully employed right now, unless they have buyout clauses, which many of them do, you know, it looks like it's going to be flicked to the end of the year or to the, to the summer, I guess. We're going to talk about Champions League in a little bit. If Ten Hag didn't make the knockout stage with Ajax this week, that's not that preposterous to me that he could leave Ajax in the middle of the season. I don't think he would do that, but it's not preposterous to, to go to Bayern. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that. Okay. What else? Next up, at Cares Lake Kent, I think yeah. it is. Does your, does your interest in watching The Sopranos have anything to do with the upcoming prequel movie? Ah, okay. All right. So another Sopranos uh, question. For those that uh, hadn't heard, I started watching The Sopranos, a uh, legendary um, HBO, right? It's an HBO drama, mafia drama. Many of you will probably have watched it. I, I never watched it, and it came about at the turn of the century, so it goes through like to the late 90s and into the early 2000s is when it, when it happened. It's actually a wonderful little time capsule. So uh, I am through, it has six seasons. I am two-thirds of the way through, so I'm done with the fourth season right now. Uh, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I first started that it's a little slow, all right? My opinion still has not changed. First off, it is a show about food, okay? It should be on the Food Network, as far as I'm concerned, because that's really what this show is about, much more so than, you know, the gangster and the mafia uh, type of uh, lifestyle. Everything revolves around food, and I, I, I get it, but it just everything revolves around food. These guys eat a lot. Everybody eats constantly. They never get filled up. They just are constantly eating and constantly hungry. As I said before, the dream sequences in The Sopranos are a little much for me. Uh, I don't particularly like them. And I will say this, and for those that have watched, I'm, I'm not spoiling, or those that haven't watched, I'm not really spoiling anything, but the relationship between Tony Soprano and his wife, uh, Car Carmella. Carmella, over the last couple of episodes, the first real interest for me occurred with their relationship, okay? And so I, I'm, I'm slightly hooked in now, okay? But it took me, you know, four seasons to, to, to get to this point. So I, it, as I said, it is an interesting time capsule. So you got, you know, it started with the 
the flip phone type of uh, lifestyle. And we, I, we, I just saw my first iPod uh, on one of the uh, one of the episodes uh, coming through. But so it's a it's a wonderful little peek into what the late '90s, early aughts were from a uh, pop culture standpoint and a living uh, standpoint. That's that's fun to watch. But dare I say it? I just don't think that it lives up. And maybe it it was of its time. But so far, I'm I'm not buying it. Okay, but I didn't know that there was a prequel coming out. Just to explain so what explain uh, he's alluding to, there is a movie coming out next year that was um, written and produced by David Chase, who is the creator of The Sopranos. Right. I believe it's called The Many Saints of Newark, and it's going to be something of a prequel. It's going to examine the mob scene in New Jersey in the 60s and 70s, and Tony's father is going to be one of the main characters in it. Also, his mother as a younger woman, and I think a young Tony as a child is going to be a character in it too. Uncle Junior, most likely. Dickie Moltisanti was Christopher's father. So look for that. I think it's supposed to come out late next year. And uh, his wife, Carmela, okay, uh, she she is an accessory, and she is a willing participant in everything. And this whole holier-than-thou type of attitude that she has, I agree with Tony Soprano that, that, that that's not flying. It's, she, she knew exactly what she signed up for, all right? And it's, it is a little rich uh, as she starts to... Uh, have this catharsis and 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 realization and awakening uh, as to what her life is and takes very little personal responsibility. You mentioned last week that you were underwhelmed by this show. Uh, soprano supervan Keith Cosigan was appalled he by was that. Appalled. There was a lot man. of uh, and I thought his soccer takes were bad comments uh, <laughs> from Keith. But uh, so you're through four seasons. Through four seasons. Because the end of uh, the season finale of the fourth season is considered the acting apex of that show. The Tony Carmela episode and and well, you're there, on that page you I, thought I totally that was on that, and i didn't even know that i didn't even know that yeah. but i i was i was riveted by that and the first for the first time i actually felt that it was of interest that it was authentic that it was incredible acting that it spoke to me and i won't spoil anything for people right. who haven't watched it but uh late in season three there's an episode called the pine barons episode in which uh, Paulie and Christopher are chasing yeah. a Russian guy through the woods. That's considered a transcendently great Sopranos episode. Do you buy that or you thought that was silly? It was dumb. <laughs> that, was, that was dumb. There's a lot of tangents. That that was dumb. The Pine Barrens thing was dumb. The uh, the tangent into film was dumb. Was dumb. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, what about the uh, Jackie Jr. season and his travails and how that ended? Did that, did that grab yeah, you? Yeah, no, you I could mean, care less. I just assume that everybody's going to die at some point. So um, I'm not as surprised well, anymore. So now we've spoiled that. Rest in <laughs> no, peace, no, Jackie no. Jr. I mean, but uh, Everybody at some point is going to die. I, I mentioned way back in the first season, there's a transcendent episode in which Tony takes Meadow to go see colleges. Uh, yes. did, did that? Do you remember? I mean, that was so long ago. I guess. Uh, no, that was that was kind of dumb too. That was. Kind of, that was <laughs> I, I, I think Tony is not a good mob boss. I don't think that he is a good leader. I don't think that it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about leadership and, and understanding. I think he picks absolutely poorly in terms of the people that he surrounds himself with. I'm not saying that he, that he picks poorly and that he's surrounding himself pe- with, with criminals. I get that. But pick smart criminals. Pick criminals that don't have drug problems or criminals that can't function or can't complete a sentence or, or have no understanding of how the world works. I think he surrounded himself, other than, 
Stevie Van Zandt, little uh, uh, little uh, what's a little a little Stevie Silvio like, Dante. Silvio Dante, uh, right? Do you find it interesting that Uncle Junior and we'll, we'll get off this, uh, Alex? <laughs> uh, Uncle Junior was the main antagonist in the first season and then turned into a confidant of Tony's in later seasons. Did you find that an odd transformation, or that seemed natural to you? That he was still alive, uh, yes, uh, did surprise me. I thought he was a goner, uh, and obviously they had some contractual things that they probably needed to sort out, and they got it, and, and he continued on. All right, so, so uh, I just very quickly on the pop culture front, I right now am plowing through season three of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and loving it. Uh, excellent show, an excellent season so far. And I saw, I talked about what a great movie year this is. I saw another excellent one, The Two Popes which is directed by a Brazilian, the guy that directed City of God and starring Anthony Hopkins and excellent. Right up there is one of my top two or three favorite movies I've seen this year so far, The Two Popes. Do you have an all-time favorite movie? All-time favorite movie. There's only one, if you can only pick one. Uh, Maybe Shawshank Redemption. Really? Shawshank? Mine's the verdict with Paul Newman. But ah, uh, nice. anyway. All right. Uh, use that uh, hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms and send us your questions. Uh, we love them, uh, whether it's about Major League Soccer or anything soccer related or the Sopranos out there. I'm sure people will have all sorts of hot takes after that little discussion and tangent that we just had. But definitely use that hashtag Alexi uh, and we will continue to read your questions, comments, and concerns going forward. All right, moving on. The back three. Okay, it's time for the uh, back three when we go through some uh, big stories, games, moments. Mossy, what's in our back three this week? We begin with uh, the UEFA Champions League. The group stage draws to a close this week. Eight teams already through, eight spots up for grabs, and Americans prominently involved. Uh, Potentially the biggest story is Salzburg hosts Liverpool, and Salzburg could advance at the expense of the holders. Napoli host Genk in the other match in that group, everybody expecting Napoli to win, which would send them through. So then it would come down to Salzburg against Liverpool. Salzburg needing to win by better than the 4-3 scoreline that Liverpool uh, beat them in match day two at Anfield. So 1-0 works, 2-1, 3-2, obviously a two-goal winner more would work and that would mean Jesse Marsh orchestrating something truly incredible you know we've talked about what Christian Pulisic is doing at Chelsea being uncharted waters for American players from a coaching perspective if Jesse Marsh were to pull this off I mean it would just send him to a different stratosphere I mean the legend of Jesse Marsh is already well on its way but something like this that would put it over over the top in particular because of what Liverpool is right now under Klopp with the with the players that they have. Do I see it happening? I'm not taking all my money and going to Vegas and putting it on it happening. But if it were to happen, then immediately you start. Well, first off, you start looking at those players that he has being sold uh, sold on in the summer, and I think you look at him making a dramatic uh, jump if he is able to orchestrate that. But by the way, if he were to do that. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about Man City a little bit uh, later, but if Jesse Marsh were to orchestrate this and somehow Liverpool bombed out, uh, and this would be a bombing out of the Champions League, with the coronation that's going to happen over the next seven months uh, when it comes to the EPL, I think it would taint it, dare I say? Would it taint it if... Having won Champions League before, last year, bombing out completely, and then winning the uh, the league wouldn't wouldn't that would that taint it for the Liverpool folks or would they wouldn't care? No, I don't they think wouldn't they care. would care. No, for me it would. Uh, 
Liverpool, incidentally, would be the first holders to crash out in the group stage since Chelsea in 2012. Chelsea, by the way, yeah, also, Chelsea. also the last European club to lose in the Club World Cup in 2012. Speaking of Pulisic and Chelsea, uh, that group is interesting. Ajax, Valencia, and Chelsea battling for two spots. Chelsea, I think, are in good shape because they host already eliminated Lille. If they win that game, they're through, right. and that would leave it to Ajax and Valencia, who battle in Amsterdam. Ajax only needing a draw to move on. But yeah, it'd be great to see Pulisic and Chelsea move on, correct? Yes, and I think with you know continued up and down that's happening with their EPL campaign right now, I, 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 would, I think it would be great to see uh, not just for Pulisic, but I think for Chelsea, as much as it pains me to say it, for our friend Alex Dowd over there, I think I think it legitimizes um, a lot of the stuff that's going on right now. And this is a work in progress right now, but if they're able to do something, and if they were able to do it, and Liverpool bombs out all that much better, right? A few other things. Barcelona have already clinched first place in their group. Inter and Dortmund are battling for second there. Inter host Barcelona. Dortmund host Slavia Prague. They're level on points. Inter have the tiebreaker, so they just need to get the same amount of points as Dortmund in this on this match day. On paper, you see Dortmund hosting Slavia Prague, Inter facing Barcelona. You think that's a tough task, but Barcelona having clinched first place, uh, it sounds like they're going to put a weekend line about their Messi didn't even travel for this game, so that is a good chance for Antonio Conte and Inter, who are flying the domestically leading Serie A to also beat Barcelona, go through in the Champions League. That would be very good for them. Atletico Madrid, if they beat Lokomotiv Moscow at home, they move on. But they've been struggling lately, not scoring goals. So it's not out of the realm of possibility they could slip up here, which would open the door for Leverkusen, who take on Juventus. And then a game that doesn't mean anything, but does have a lot of juice to it. Bayern Munich hosts Tottenham. Lewandowski trying to break uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's group stage record for goals. Uh, Tottenham trying to avenge that 7-2 loss in match day two. That was with Pochettino on the bench. Mourinho now in charge. That should be an interesting one, right? Look, there are a lot of interesting ones. Some of them with real significance and ramifications. Others, like you said, where it's, it's more of bragging rights and, and, and stuff like that. And we talked a little bit about what, what Bayern isn't this year and what it is hoping to get back and, and needs to be. It would also be Ironic if in the year that Bayern fails to live up to their domestic capabilities, that that's the year that they get it together and that Lewandowski uh, takes them through uh, from a Champions League. But, you know, it highlights the fact that, you know, some of these some of these clubs that are built to be elite, that are built with the money and the talent that they have, have to fight on all these multiple fronts at, at different times. And I'm, look, I'm not crying for them. It's part of the deal when you play at some of these clubs. But your ability as a manager and your ability as a, a player to manage yourself is, is so crucial. And picking and choosing and prioritizing is something that's done. It rubs me a little the wrong way when, you, when, when teams are doing that because it takes something away from tournaments or games where – you know, players and uh, uh, fans should get the should get the best. But I get it. You know, you're you 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 live to fight another day. You lose the battle in order to win the war. That type of stuff. So switching gears to England, uh, what a difference a week makes for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Wow. Uh, last Ooh, I Monday. Mean, well, we were ta- we were talking about it all the time about how good he was, and that if they were to <laughs> make a change, it would be ridiculous, right? Yeah, last Monday we were speculating about this man losing his job, and he beats Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola back to back. So for the time being, at least United have righted the ship. Yeah, but this it, is this fool's gold in your yeah, thank you thank you perfectly put this is um, and this is why they still have Ole Gunnar 
Yes. It was a 2-1 victory at the Etihad this weekend. Uh, from the City perspective, they've now dropped 16 points. That's the same amount they dropped all of last season. They are 14 points back of Liverpool. Uh, what do you make of their struggles? Are you surprised? No, I think it's look, it's it's obviously difficult, despite their incredible talent and their money that they have behind them. It's still incredibly difficult to be able to rejuvenate and start again and do the same type of thing year after year after year, especially when you have the type of competition that comes from someone like uh, someone like Liverpool that's always there nipping at your heels or from a uh, you know a Champions League type of perspective already with that uh, with that crown. There have been injuries, but everybody deals with injuries. I also think maybe more so from a Manchester City perspective as opposed to a Liverpool perspective, the way in which Pep wants to play, demands that the players play and that the team plays, I think is very unique and specific. It's one one of the reasons why we love him, but it also, it can be difficult. And I think it can be complex and I think it can be debilitating. And I think it'd be difficult once you start taking one or two pieces out for either a, a, a long time or even a short time. Yeah, Pep has said all the right things about how he's finally found a place in Manchester where he can lay down some roots and stay mm -hmm. a long time. But there is this feeling that his style can be very draining and there's a shelf life to it. And if you go based on his track record, sure. this is about the timetable. It, it was four seasons at Barcelona, three seasons at Bayern. This is the fourth season at Manchester City. So I'm not suggesting anything there, but I'm just throwing that out there. I always find it interesting when the team nearest to first place is one that people don't think can win the title. Leicester are eight points back with 22 rounds to go, which is not an insurmountable deficit. But in terms of the title race, everybody looks at the gap as being 14 because they look at Liverpool in relation to Manchester City. And Manchester City host Leicester December 21. If the gaps are what they are going into that game, obviously if you're a Liverpool fan, you'd love a draw there. But let's say there has to be a winner. Which team would you rather see win that game? At what point are you going to feel like City are done and dusted and now we have to root against Leicester? I don't think that Leicester is going to come into people's consciousness, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. You know, notwithstanding what they did a few years ago, which was wonderful. But back then, what was the, the take? The take was, well, this is an aberration. This is an anomaly. Wonderful. I mean, historic, but this is something that we'll, we'll never see again. And yet, can you imagine it would be the, the most Liverpool <laughs> thing to do if, <laughs> if at the end they get pipped? It's not by Man City, but it's by a Leicester coached by Brendan Rodgers. I mean, that would be the ultimate Liverpool type of thing to do. And they're conflicted Liverpool fans because Leicester is their nearest challenger, so they sort of have to root against him, but they also would love to see Leicester get one of those top four spots at the expense of one of right. their more hated rivals right, like right, United right. or Chelsea or Tottenham or Arsenal. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting I don't think there. that Leicester is going to get the attention or the respect that it deserves throughout the year, even if they're right there nipping at the heels. Uh, one more Premier League note. I am shocked this didn't make its way into the rundown this week, but Chelsea had its transfer ban lifted, and there are already reports that uh, Frank Lampard submitted a lengthy list uh, of players to Roman Abramovich that he would like to sign, and lots of attacking players there. So this has Pulisic implication, guys like Timo Werner and Jadon Sancho of Wilfred Zaha. So we'll see. You know, Chelsea's had this, like, feel-good thing, and we're playing youngsters now, but they were sort of forced into that. Yeah. Now is it going to be back to business as usual? I mean, I've been wondering well, what this well, team is going to look like after a couple of transfer windows here where they're going to try to make up for lost time and throw some money around and try to sign a bunch but of But did they players? prove that the ban was unwarranted because 
they got it wrong. I mean, you either violated the law or you didn't. You either pay the price or you don't. So what? I'm not sure. I haven't read the specifics okay. of that ruling. But yeah, all these teams that got this same punishment were able to, on appeal, to, I think, postpone it or reduce right. it to some degree. So it's weird. Yeah, none, none of them, it actually stuck exactly the way it was initially. So, uh, and then final note on the Premier League, which will segue nicely into our last topic. Hungman Son scored uh, an incredible goal. One for the ages, uh, yeah. Yes. What was better? This has been a big debate in okay. the Twitter sphere the last couple of days. Hungman Son's goal or Luis Suarez's back heel for Barcelona? Yeah, so if you didn't see it, uh, Son's goal was, and I think they've clocked it at 80 yards or whatever it ends up being. I mean, he got the ball basically at the top of his 18, dribbled the entire length of the field, beat multiple players. I think he bypassed eight players. He might, might have beaten three or four actually on the dribble and then obviously uh, put it in the back of the goal, as opposed to Luis Suarez's goal, which was this this tomahawk back heel that generated such incredible force and bounce that it was almost as if he chipped it with a back heel, hitting it off the ground. It was, it was incredible. First off, that he thought to do it. Secondly, that he had the ability to do it. And third, that in the way that he pulled it off, it wasn't just a, a shot on the ground. It was actually chipped that went over in the back. You have to check it out if you didn't see it. So now the debate is which one, in, which one is better. The ability to go 80 yards, okay, against a 2019 opponent. And with all the different moments when uh, the tackle could have been made and wasn't. And if you watch it, there's a couple of times where a defender went at him recognized that they were going to foul and pulled back. And part of me said, no, you got to take that foul. you got to take that foul. But then part of me, the romantic part of me said, that's wonderful because we would have been denied the opportunity to see one of the great goals in history had the person done what every coach would tell you in that moment. Take the foul. Uh, if you get a yellow card, that's fine. You stop the, uh, the progress and all that kind of stuff because once he gets ahead of steam, but that didn't happen. People were kind of, it was as if the, the, the skies opened up and the soccer gods were, were raining down a mist that made players do things that in the normal uh, course of the modern day game, they wouldn't do. That, that is better than the back heel. The back heel is wonderful and will be talked about, but this goal, um, it was Maradona-esque, but it was even longer and as I said, there was plenty of opportunity for players to get him. And he just, I watched it in, uh, in Korean. Uh, if you, there's a wonderful version of it where the uh, Korean commentators are doing. And so anytime someone touches the ball, they, the level of their voice increases. And so he's touching it way back at the 18. And it just starts and starts. And, they get, and then they can see what's starting to happen or potentially going to happen. And it's just a wonderful um, uh, you know, outburst and, and uh, moment of joy for them. I have my issues with Jose Mourinho, but his most endearing quality is he shares my love for the Brazilian Ronaldo, and he immediately went there. He compared the goal to a famous goal that Ronaldo scored against Compostela for Barcelona in 1996. Mourinho was sitting on the bench that day as an assistant to Sir Bobby Robinson, who had a famous reaction to the goal. He jumped out of the bench, looked at the stands, and had this look of like, oh my God, what did I just see? Ronaldo dribbling through everybody. But yeah, so Mourinho evoked that. I mean, obviously a lot of people evoked Maradona too, which you just did. So, yeah, incredible goal. We'll end in Spain. The 
Suarez's goal was scored in Barcelona's 5-2 win over Stu Holden's Mallorca. <laughs> uh, Stu was in attendance at Camp Nou. Uh, Lionel Messi getting a hat-trick uh, in that one. Real Madrid victorious as well. They beat Espanyol 2-0. Benzema can't stop scoring. Uh, interesting. Barcelona have run away with La Liga the last two seasons. They finished 19 points ahead of Real Madrid last right. season, 17 points the year before. Uh, much different story this season. They are level on points through 15 rounds. So a lot of people already excited about the December 18th Classico at Camp Nou. We'll talk more about that game uh, next week. But a couple of big picture of Barcelona-Real Madrid things I want to hit you with. Messi, in one of the interviews he did after winning the Ballon d'Or, uh, mentioned that retirement is near. And, and France football recently also released an article chronicling uh, Messi's efforts this past summer of luring in luring Neymar back to Barcelona. And Messi reportedly told him, I'm going to be gone in a couple of years, so you can take over then. And so that set off this frenzy in Spain, everybody speculating uh, how much longer is Messi going to play, how prepared are Barcelona for a post-Messi world. Is Ansu Fati really the second coming and the successor and all that? He's 32 years old, still winning Ballon d'Or, scoring hat-tricks every other weekend. We've talked about him maybe walking away from the national team, but can you see a world in which Messi would retire altogether in the next couple of years? I can. I can see a Messi doing a, uh, a Clint Dempsey type of thank you very much, disappear and never see or hear from him. I mean, look, he's one of the most visible people in the world, so people will take pictures of him and stuff like that. But he's never been one to, uh, I mean, especially when you compare it to Cristiano. I can definitely see him just saying, and talk about dropping the mic, <laughs> dropping the mic, uh, going off into the sunset, and we don't hear from him uh, ever again. I don't see Messi in the Zinedine Zidane mold. I don't ever see Messi on the sideline managing and coaching. I don't think that that's something. I mean, I don't know, but it, I just don't. See, I can't. I can't fathom that type of thing. But I can fathom him in the next couple of years saying thank you very much. I don't see him as MLS bound. I don't see him as China bound. I see him still being forever associated with Barcelona so much so that I think he continues to be a part of that organization, you know, ambassadorial type of thing. But even that, I don't, I think, you know, he, he Greta Garbo's just says, thank you very much. I want to be alone. Speaking of Zidane, I look like an idiot because I question his return to Real Madrid and he Again? is pushing all the right buttons. Uh, they're playing very well. Now, Hazard and Bale, uh, both injured right now, very iffy for the Clasico. Be interesting to see if, if... It's the 18th, right, you said? Yeah, okay. be yeah. interesting to see if they're not fit for that game, whether Zidane would trust Vinicius and or Rodrigo to start that game. You know, Real Madrid, they've sort of ended up with, and I say ended up because nobody associates Real Madrid with youth development, but they've ended up with this impressive assemblage of young talent on their books. You've got on the team now guys like Rodrigo, Vinicius Jr., Federico Valverde, who is absolutely fantastic. And then on loan, you've got Martin Odegaard, you've got Ashraf Hakimi, Sergio Reguillon. And because some of these guys are on loan, uh, others don't start regularly. They're still surrounded by veterans. It's sort of spread out and the point gets lost. But if you put all these guys on like an Ajax or a Monaco, we'd be talking about this being this incredible nucleus of young players and this next wave of stars. And it's, it's interesting to see them on Real Madrid. And I wonder how they're going to handle that in the coming years. And even for the guys that are there, this for the rest of this season, what their role is going to be. It's going to be kind Have of fascinating. Isco is he back? Yes, Zidane has even sort of recovered I mean, him for the cause. Remember Yeah, he, he started against PSG in the Champions League, played great. Real Madrid somehow blew a two-goal lead that 
uh, that day and, and drew 2-2, but their performance was fantastic. I think it really stamped them as a real contender to win the Champions League this season. So, yeah, it, it's all, after shaky start, it's all rounding into form for Zidane and everybody already looking ahead to that uh, December 18th game. So, like I said, we will we'll talk about that uh, on uh, next but it's uh, back Mondays. Where it's, it's back where it's always been, right? Yeah, I mean, Real Madrid. yeah I mean, Atletico are in seventh right now. And it's funny, Simeone said recently, this is a transition season and his and the owners pushed back against that. They said, wait a minute, we're a big club. There's no such thing as transition seasons. We, you know, we have, we have to contend for trophies every year. And that's always been kind of a funny slup, subplot there because Simeone, despite all the success the last seven or eight years, he still likes to cry poor and sort of cultivate an underdog image when it suits right. him. And his bosses are not having that. They're like, no, no, we're at a level now where you, you can't be talking like that. Like, we're, we're supposed to be contending every year for major trophies. So, mm-hmm. so keep an eye on that situation. Simeone, it's a transition to winning. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. That is it. All right. So we uh, come to the end of yet another pod. Uh, And at the end of each and every pod, as you know, we give our one big thing. You know, I started off getting all fired up about the United States uh, Soccer Federation. And I tell you each and every time, while it is near and dear to us and while we take it personally, it is just uh, soccer. But, you know, I I was uh, a part of the United States Soccer Federation for a number of years as a player. It gave me opportunities. I look at it as a a beacon, I guess. Not that it can solve everybody's problems, not that it should solve everybody's problems, not that it should be involved in everything that American soccer is, uh, but that it can be involved in things in terms of doing good things uh, and pushing the sport forward. And I, I come in contact with a lot of men and women uh, that work in soccer. I come in contact with a lot of men and women that work at the United States Soccer Federation. And they hear all of this and they they see all of this. And as we talked about in the State of the Union, some of it is legitimate and some of it is fair. Some of it, there are counter arguments. Um, There are points where it's not getting out what they are doing. But, you know, ultimately, I do want to see the United States Soccer Federation recognize that while they have problems and while they are uh, at times, while they at times set themselves up for criticism, uh, there is good that they do. Uh, I want them to defend themselves. Uh, I want them to answer for the things that they do. And that's a, that's a good thing. That is something that, uh, a federation I think should do because they can do wonderful things and it can help propel the sport forward. And there are good people uh, that work there and that they are getting at times crapped on from the outside, sometimes legitimately, um, but sometimes unfairly. And a lot of them don't have a voice. And so the leadership when it comes to U.S. soccer, uh, you are the voice, you are the faces. And when you at least appear to be reluctant to get out there on a continual basis and stand up for yourselves, and more importantly, stand up for the men and women out there, it's disheartening. Um, It's disappointing because while it's not ever going to be enough to take away criticism, that's always going to be part of sports and certainly part of the United States Soccer Federation, I think that had a recognition been there from the start that you can get ahead of different things and you can get a, um, a viewpoint out there that can help give people a much more balanced and nuanced type of understanding of what's going on that you could help yourself. But unfortunately, that ship sailed. 
I don't know if it's, it's possible to even get it back, but I want people there that are trying and I'm willing to give them the time to make their case and to defend the decisions that they are making. And as I said early in this, and I'll finish with this, I don't have to agree with everything that is being done and the decisions that they're being made, but you have to believe in it. And I have to feel that there is a belief um, in the things that they are doing. And when you have that, then what you get, well, you want, might not get ultimate um, agreement, as I said with it, but you will get respect. And this United States Soccer Federation right now is not respected. And that has got to change. And yes, it changes oftentimes with results and qualifying for World Cups and youth teams doing well and all that kind of stuff that can make up for a lot. It's not only about that. And I hope that the people, the men and women that do work each and every day diligently uh, recognize that that is their charge, that is their responsibility, uh, and that is something that I believe uh, can happen uh, if uh, mistakes are admitted, challenges and problems are understood, and also that you have champions out there. You have people supporting you. You have people defending you uh, for all the good that is done, and there is plenty of good that is done. All right, with that, Mossy, anything else before we head out? Nope. All right, remember to use that hashtag AskAlexi out there on the social media platforms. Send us all of your comments, questions, and concerns. Please rate and review and subscribe and download and do all the things when you're out there on your different uh, podcast platforms, be it uh, Apple or be it uh, Stitcher or on Spotify or YouTube or anywhere else out there where you are listening or watching. And if you are listening and watching out there, thank you. Thank you for doing it each and every week. Uh, It means the world to us. We will continue to do this, and we will talk again next week, right back here from Los Angeles on the State of the Union podcast. Until then, size the day.